This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I am once again joined by David Hughes. You okay, mate? Very good, thanks, Josh. How are you? Are you sure you're okay? Uh, I'm okay, thanks, <laughs> yeah. Let's just get on with the show. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't lost too long on the weekend, lads. Yeah. Yeah, it's, no. it's, it's, much, it's a happier place for me on, in this world, <laughs> in the analysing Anfield world. Everything's just rosier. Yeah, well, just about, because the weekend we scraped it, uh, we are back at an earlier than usual date today on the Tuesday. Um so it still feels a, a little tiny bit fresh, but no real time to look back because we've got Napoli tomorrow, Brighton on the weekend. But nevertheless, we're going to do that. We're going to analyse Palace and then we're going to look ahead to the two upcoming matches. Slightly less on Napoli though, because obviously we've already analysed analysed them a couple of months ago. Um, but I think from from my perspective, just regarding Crystal Palace, didn't particularly like the match. Mm. Um I thought it fell under the category of lucky you win um, rather than ugly or, you know, dominance or anything like that. That's basically a theme that we've come up with on the show, isn't it? That it, it yeah, it I suppose it is. two ways on the tight games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, for, for me, it didn't it didn't go as, as expected, as I said. And I think that was because, not because we, you know, interpreted the numbers wrong or anything like that. I think for me, it was just a case of Liverpool being below par. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did say it'd be a tight game though, didn't we? Um, we did. In the sense that scoreline tight maybe, rather than necessarily Liverpool not dominating the game. Yeah, um, we we did, but particularly in relation to the shot count, mm-hmm. we, it, it looks completely wrong. Obviously, I, I expected Liverpool to, to post upwards of 20 shots mm. and Palace below 10. Mm. Just because that seems to be the way things go, that seems to be the way Palace perform against top teams like Liverpool. Mm. Uh, but it, you know, it wasn't the case. Palace took sixteen, Liverpool took twelve. Liverpool actually got outshot on the day, and that doesn't happen particularly often at all. And when it does, it's usually against top to, top sides. Mm. Um, so it was a Quite remarkable, really, that actually, isn't it? Especially considering Palace don't seem to be very attack-minded and, and we flagged Hodgson, didn't we, as someone who doesn't really tend to over-focus on winning these games and maybe just getting through them a little bit. Yeah, well, we, we, we perceived him, didn't we, as quite a, a very standard mid-table manager. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, good in some areas, not particularly good in some areas, but not not terrible at anything, mm. not great at anything. Um Happy to assume the inferior role if you like against against bigger sides. So I expected it to be a attack versus defence, but I think it materialised a little bit differently to that. As I said, because Liverpool seemed offered to me. Mm. Liverpool didn't seem as well drilled as usual. Mm. Um, didn't particularly seem to sustain pressure as well as usual in terms of keeping the ball in Palace's half for virtually the whole match. Mm. We seem to let them just break through our count, our, our press a little bit. Uh, quite often, the ball was in and around the midfield. Quite often, rather than being in their half, as I said, and it was just a little bit more out of our control than usual. Mm. Well, go on. I was going to say what I found really interesting when I was having a look back is um, 
I think Liverpool, possession-wise, still were just about the more dominant side, weren't they? But um, I noticed in the first half, they, they had about 68% of the ball, and in the second, it was only 48 and it's very rare that you'd kind of... I suppose what impacts that slightly is Liverpool were winning early in the second half, but you still normally expect Liverpool to remain the dominant side, don't you? And I think it maybe says a lot about what you're pointing out in terms of the struggles to keep them penned in, because traditionally when we think about Liverpool, they normally keep them penned in and the, the, the opposition will get a little bit panicked, clear the lines, and that's where Liverpool regain the ball again and just keep it wave after wave. And it doesn't seem to be... They were doing that as good in the in the second half, at least. Yeah, it just felt as though there was a little bit of a lack of intensity mm. for me. Um, Liverpool, obviously, relentless, high tempo and things like that, but there was plenty of moments, particularly in the first half, where the ball was being played around the likes of Robertson, Van Dijk, Lovren, high up the field. Sorry, deep in the field. Um and there was no real pace to it, no real intent. Mm. And it was just a bit too... Obviously, that was the game plan from Palace's perspective, just let, let Liverpool's deeper players have the ball, yeah. keep your shape sort of thing. But there was no real intent from Liverpool to say, OK, now we're going to go, no, yeah. now we're going to play forwards, now we're going to break the lines or whatever. I must say, Lovren broke the lines a couple of couple of times, um, Matip-style passes uh, yeah. in a couple of instances. Do you think Liverpool missed Matip in those, in those moments, in those games? Yeah, he's, he's definitely a useful player in possession. Matip, he's, he's inclined to, if we are against a team like this and their, their approach is to, you know, sit him behind the ball and rather than close down, keep your shape. Matip's inclined to just run with the ball towards the nearest man, make him come towards him, almost like bait him. Mm. And then once he comes towards him, then he'll play a pass into the space that's just opened up. So he's, he's a useful player in that regard, Matip. Yeah. And Lovren didn't... Well, I suppose he did sometimes, yeah. Lovren performed as close to Matip, I think, as, as I've ever seen him do, mm-hmm. which um, I'm not sure we'll see again. But maybe it's then from just Palace's approach to the defensive side of the game on, on a day. Mm. Um, but yeah, just... I mean, I'm talking like Liverpool have lost. Liverpool obviously won the match 2-1. Yeah. But we are obviously about performances on on this on this podcast predominantly, and I think Liverpool's performance on the day was just just for me a little bit, little bit lacking in intensity both with and without the ball. Do you large periods? Why do you think that is? Though, do you feel like it's because um, because it was just one of those days, or is the is the busy? I don't just mean when I say the high amount of fixtures. I don't just mean having the fixtures to play. I mean, having fixtures that are at the very top end of the game, you know, so Liverpool can't just kind of... No, for other teams, you can go through Premier League season and kind of you have your big games, then you'll have your your mundane games that you, like, draw or even lose. But for Liverpool, every every game is huge, isn't it? Every game is huge. And do you think that's draining mentally and... Could that be what we're seeing sometimes in, in the likes of these performances or is it just a bad day at the office, in your opinion? I mean, possibly it is staying mentally, but if, if it was staying mentally, it, they didn't show that by the end of the match because we, yeah. st- we still managed to end up coming through it and, and winning. Maybe it's a case of Liverpool managing their energy. Maybe it's a case of Liverpool staying in whatever gear is enough to get them the win mm. rather than going full throttle. Mm. Um, I'm not particularly sure, but... It just felt as though, as I said, Palace broke easier than other teams I've seen yeah. against Liverpool. 
and Liverpool showed a bit less forward intent on the ball in possession. Uh, just to capture the you know the shot count point that I mentioned earlier, Liverpool don't tend to tend to lose the shot count. We've lost the shot count uh, today against uh, today sun, Sunday Sunday was it Sunday Saturday Saturday. Saturday against Crystal Palace. It's been a busy few days, hasn't it, mate? Yeah, <laughs> this, is, into this one. is my third podcast in the space of 24 hours. Mm. So, uh, yeah, but lost a shot count against Palace on the weekend. Before that, we lost it against Chelsea away. We deemed that as quite... What was that? Lucky win. Mm. That was that one. Uh, Newcastle away last season when we scraped the win towards the end of the year at the campaign. West Ham away last season. We threw that one one all, and Leicester away last season. We ended up winning that one two one, but mm. that was quite a lucky escape too. So, whenever this seems to happen, Liverpool either seem to draw, or or basically leave, having benefited from good fortune. Really, mm. yeah. Um, it's not. It's not really a position you want to be in, is it? As no, as, as, as you have to talk about. You want to out out shoot your opponents. Yeah, and that that is basically why. The likes of Arsenal um, and Spurs, up until recently at least, have different results every single week. Sometimes they win, sometimes they draw, sometimes they lose. It's because they, they haven't been able to dominate the shot counts, particularly Arsenal. Yeah. Liverpool win most weeks because they have that under their control, but on the weekend against Palace, that didn't really seem to be the case. Although Liverpool did win the expected goals on the day, Palace posted an expected goals of about 1.1 compared to Liverpool's in about 1.6-ish, something like that. So Liverpool obviously had slightly more clear-cut chances. Um, One more negative I want to touch on. I mean, going down a bit of a rabbit hole here. Get them out the way. In terms of negatives, yeah. But I think Trent, just just defensively, a little bit off it for me. Yeah, someone we talked about this last week, and someone pulled us on it a little bit, saying he's he's proved his defensive capabilities. I'm still not a hundred percent sure on them, and you know, certainly for Palace's goal, he just he just seemed pretty pedestrian and getting back. And you know, I wonder whether it maybe he's in such a unique position where. Rightfully so, everybody really values him, especially his attacking input, and that's what everybody talks about. I just wonder whether his mindset is a little bit of, you know, I, I'm i so good in attack that maybe his defensive responsibilities now in his head come second a little bit, or he doesn't value them as highly as he once did. Um, and certainly at times it would seem as though on Saturday that was that was the case a little bit. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, he was just saying, it's it's not so much his defensive, like for, say for example when he faced up in a one on one, it's not so much his defensive game in that regard. Yeah, it's just when the ball is lost, you have to be more focused than you actually are, mm. and you have to be more willing to to run, get back into position, help your teammates, work for your teammates, and there was just a few moments um, at Selhurst Park when. Liverpool lost the ball and Palace had gone had go through with a quick counter attack and, and Trent would be just basically jogging back a little bit lazy. Mm. Um I will say that anyone that's played eleven side on them pitches, it is tiring to to 
constantly run up and down the flanks all day. I, I understand it. And if that's the case, then, you know, fair enough. But I, I can't help but thinking that he's maybe reliant on other players to, to carry him a little bit without the ball. And he's inclined to think that, you, you know, I'm, I might not get back, but it'll be fine. Yeah. Be- because of, you know, I don't know, Van Dyke, Allison, you know, it'll be fine sort of thing. But I said to you be- before, didn't I? Gary Neville said a couple of weeks ago, um, he said Trent almost needs to to cost Liverpool a big game. He almost needs to, to be responsible for a really big error or loss or, or something along those lines just to get, just to put it into perspective in his head, just to get him back in terms of this is what can happen if you're not, <coughs> running at 100% your, your capacity sort of thing I think he could have uh, certainly played a part in stopping Palace's goal you know he, he he's jogging back and Ben Teke cuts in and he's there or thereabouts but I think if he really works hard to get back he could probably could have got a foot in there if not he, he could at least maybe track Zaha I'm not saying he would have tracked him all the way into the 18 yard box because obviously that wouldn't make sense there's players there but I think he could have played a part in stopping the goal to be honest um, yeah I mean we're we're, we're analysing the minute details here and ifs and buts you know and there's no guarantee but I do agree I think he uh, but I think there's also an aspect that he's still young isn't it and you know he's he's still learning he's still only 21 um, maybe that sort of mistake will will happen soon and it'll just realign his his role yeah I mean you mentioned his age there I suppose at that age, you are a bit more inclined to become slightly complacent, mm. particularly if, I mean, Liverpool have lost once in the Premier League, I think, in about 52 matches now. Mm. So it's it's probably quite normal for a lad of that age to assume the perspective of, if I don't get back, we will be fine, yeah. which isn't a, great, isn't a great thing, but, and, you know, I, I'd expect Klopp to be quite aware of it mm. and making sense aware of it, but... You mentioned there that he could have prevented Palace's goal. I think he's jogging back at one point. And from out, from his outlook, it maybe looks like I, I won't be able to stop this. The play the play's too ahead of me. Mm-hmm. But then once the play materialises and Trent realises, okay, I can influence this, mm-hmm. then he sprints. And if he sprint if he'd sprinted from the start, then you 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 would yeah. have been able to influence that's, it fully. That's, yeah, that's the point I was basically hinting at, yeah. He um I think was it Lovren that Ben Teke knocks it past? I can't remember who it was, but if he if he works harder to get back, you, you two on one there, two defenders versus an attack, it's very unlikely he's going to be able to do anything with that ball. But as I said, it's it's such minute details that maybe we're being a little bit harsh on on the goal point at least. But it is a good point, definitely. Yeah, I mean we have we have praised him virtually every week. Yeah, yeah. He is unbelievable with the ball, and he's performing. He's interpreting the role of right-back differently to what I've ever seen before in the Premier League. Mm. Uh, but it's just, you know, that complacency you don't want to seep in and you don't want them to get the perception of, I am an in-possession player yeah. and then without the ball, you're just jogging and letting others carry it. You don't, you don't really want that, so... You can't do that in a, in a defensive position. That's one drawback of him reinventing this right-back, right-wing-back role is... Uh, you can't do that. Say some attackers can, can't they? You can kind of be like that, but yeah. you still got to be a defender first and foremost. Yeah, but, you know, beyond all that, Liverpool did find another way of winning again. Uh, 37 points, is it? From a possible 39, I think. 
Mm. Um, you know, remarkable, yeah. I mean, did you see the tweet that I put up yesterday about Liverpool conceding late goals? Uh, no, I don't think so. I basically said that Liverpool have conceded seven of their 11 Premier League goals in the final 30 minutes of their matches. But it's quite remarkable that not one of them has led to them dropping points. Yeah. I think that comes to that ability to either shut up shop or um, go on and somehow find a response, no matter how late it is. Yeah, well, th- this is why you can't help thinking that maybe Liverpool just have gears mm. um, and, and maybe in certain matches when we aren't going completely full throttle, I mean, you can't help thinking that maybe it's just a ploy just to save energy for the big games in the season that will obviously end up coming. Because whenever Liverpool do need a goal, we seem to be able to just find it, just like step it up a level sort of thing. And such an adaptable side, and um, you know, be, being able to find this means of winning. I think it just comes down to to the intangible sort of thing. You know, if you've fostered a culture over the course of about three years under a manager that believes in this sort of thing, mm. he believes in you know all for one sort of thing and. Everyone united from top to bottom, and it's it's not over until we say it's over. Mm. And it's actually came through, and it's, I mean, it, I think it speaks volumes that when Liverpool did concede, I said to you before that on, on the the 81st minute, I didn't really feel that in trouble. I I still thought Liverpool could win it. Yeah. Still felt as though it was in our hands, and that's with ten minutes of the game remaining away from home at a. At a a stubborn defensive team. Yeah, it's it, it's it it does say a lot about the mindset when you see ten minutes is plenty of time. You know where there's other sides. You probably think, well, oh, ten minutes, game's dead now. Um, so yeah, testament really to to Liverpool's ability at the moment in scoring late goals and important goals at that. Yeah. So uh, the current gap is eight points still to Leicester. Impressively. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we'll we'll readdress them later in the season, but maybe couple of our initial points that we made on them a couple of weeks ago, they have improved upon, which is normal. I think he's got now a stable 11 and things like that. And he's obviously working towards an end goal. So, and I think, I think they're progressing towards there. So, credit to Brendan Rodgers there. But. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. We'll move on to a brief word about Napoli because they seem to be in a weird state of, uh, I'm not sure what you'd say. State turmoil? Of, yeah, turmoil, yeah. yeah, probably. Yeah, I don't So, I'm not really sure what's what's going on, but players seem to be, not, aren't going to play, are they? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, players, along yeah. those lines, yeah. I tried. I basically tried to read up on it early, and I can't quite work out what's going on, but there's, yeah, just turmoil behind the scenes, and I don't expect it to be a similar match to last season's, where Liverpool... One one nil. It was a bit of a tight affair. I don't really know what to expect. I think that I think it, Napoli are um, quite a I don't know quite a re- robust side. I'm not basically if they were coming now, I would expect it to be a you know something similar to what we've seen on the previous three meetings. You know, but I just think the way it is at the moment, I, I, it could be a bit of a mess, and it could be one of them where they just get turned over. Yeah, well, again, this this comes down to the intangibles, doesn't it? Yeah. And if, if a player is, well, if if a squad's unhappy, or I don't know if they're not if they're not particularly committed to what Ancelotti's doing, or I, I think I've I've heard murmurs of him being relatively in trouble regarding his future, then 
you know, the last place you want to go with that kind of mindset is probably Anfield. Mm. Um, Liverpool only need one point to qualify, which I'm inclined to think we'll get on the day. That's a modest way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, I mean, just to elaborate on, on Napoli's current situation, their last six matches in all competitions, I think, 1-1, uh, 0-0, 1-1, 2-1 loss, 2-2, 1-1. Um, plenty of, you know, matches in there that they probably should have won as well. Just, just you know, based on the strength of the opposition. Uh, they're without Milch and they're without Insigne. Um, you know, as, as we just said, reports about squad mutiny in there, so... It'll be an interesting one to see how that one plays out because obviously Liverpool only need the points. We will obviously be inclined to save energy if we can. Mm. So I don't think we'll, we'll go out there. I think Klopp's got mutual respect as well regarding Ancelotti, so I don't think we'll go out there and demolish them 6-0 or something like that. But I think just based on Napoli's current situation, I think it's it's possible to you know to appreciate that, that we could do that if we if we wanted to almost, which sounds yeah, very yeah, arrogant. No, but I, no, I actually... Just based on all circumstances, it wouldn't surprise me if it was just a very un, a very unlike Liverpool Napoli game, you know, because we've seen it three times over the past twelve months. You feel like you've got a bit of a feel for how they play. It tends to be fairly tight. Um, I just I think this game, because of those issues that we just mentioned, could be quite a comfortable win for Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, just Napoli are unchanged really since we. Last faced them, and since we faced them a year ago, still sitting up in a four four two. Um, although it's in, inclined to adjust slightly depend dependence on the opponent. Um, and Ancelotti has this really effective ploy really up against Liverpool, whereby he instructs one of his fullbacks to advance on, mm. um, and provide kind of an outlet for for his team to drive up the field, and that allows Napoli to form back three with the, the remaining three defenders mm. and that back three occupies Male, eh, Male Mane, Salah and Firmino mm. with Koulibaly up against Salah in particular so yeah. it does seem to work against as well we've, we've generally found it quite difficult uh, we beat Napoli 1-0 last season but we also lost away and we lost away this season so mm. you know what he what he seems to be doing tactically does seem to work against Liverpool but uh, as I said this time I, I'm inclined to think that that won't be the case. No, it's a shame. Well, it's not a shame for the point points view. It's great, but as I said, they have been really intriguing battles. But I just don't expect this one to be like that. Sadly for Napoli, but great news for Liverpool. Yeah. Uh, before we move on, predictions on that one. Yeah, as I said, I, I've, I've got a feeling they'll. I, I won't go too extreme, but I do fancy a Liverpool three nil. Yeah, I was thinking three nil, yeah. maybe three one or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but we'll move on anyway to to Brighton. Got Brighton on the weekend. Um, Graham Potter, mm. highly rated. Yeah, very amongst very much so. amongst most. I think it's both. I think it was the fact that he was so highly rated from a, a certainly on the surface of just looking at the league table and nothing behind it. Now Swansea didn't particularly do great last season uh, in terms of points return, but you know people were still very excited by by Potter, weren't they? And obviously Brighton made. Um, made the necessary steps to bring him on, bring him in as manager at the end of the last season. Well, sorry, started this season. Yeah, I mean, little bit of a segue here, but obviously Marco Silva's supposedly in trouble. Mm. I'm assuming Graham Potter's relatively in in the fray for for yourself. 
in terms of the, the type of person that you'd maybe be inclined to get in? Potentially, yeah, but it just seems, you know, I, I think that would be a good move for for, for Everton, but uh, I don't you believe... You can't see it. I just couldn't... Why would he... No, no disrespect to Everton now, but why would he move to Everton so soon when he's only just gone to Brighton? Um, if we were talking two years down the line, maybe, but um, I think he's he seems inclined to maybe look to try, although he wasn't there at Swansea long, he seems inclined to maybe try and find a club where he can build something. Yeah, a bit of a long-term type. Yeah, yeah. and I think at Brighton he could do that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I agree on that, yeah. He seems a bit like Klopp in that regard, mm. just, you know, focused on the intangibles and, and, and culture mm. and things like that. I think he's big on culture behind the scenes. Laying the foundations r- yeah. rather than just on the pitch stuff. Yeah, all as one sort of thing and a bit philosophical and getting to know the players outside the pitch, all that sort of stuff, which in the long run does make a difference. If you can get the players committed to the cause yeah. and as though, you know, everything on the pitch matters to beyond just a result, mm. then, you know, players are likely to run an extra mile for you. Yeah. Uh, but Brighton as a club, you know, very, very interesting, certainly applicable to this show, I suppose, because yeah. they're, they're very data-focused, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. Some of the recruitment that they do seems to be Stuff that you we would we would probably um, crudely term data science, yeah. Um, and yet they just they just seem a very modern club. The hierarchy with the you know the director of football in there, and they just they seem everything that you'd that you'd expect if you wanted to use that term modern club, um, which is in turn maybe help them overperform compared to what you'd expect. You know you'd probably look at. Brighton as a club traditionally and see them as a, a second tier side, you know, maybe a lower end championship team, but they're, they're now a firmly established Premier League club, aren't they? Yeah, well, do you, do you think they've still got the, the defensive, what's the word, identity, though, like amongst football fans in, in England, do you think they've still got people that are likely to look at them and think, oh, defensive team? Yeah, well, I think the problem is, and I said, I've said to you, I said this to you earlier on the show we did, that, and, it, a lot of football fans will focus on their own team and drift in and out of interest on what other sides yeah. are doing. I think Brighton could be a prime example of that. I've seen them as very much like a maybe the team under Chris Hutton. Yeah. But what's really impressed me about Potter is how he's 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 come in and done something similar to what um what was his name who tried to Frank De Boer tried to do Crystal Palace. Yeah. In some <laughs> ways. Just he's tried he's come in and completely changed it, but it's it's to an extent, worked. Whereas obviously it, it, it failed big time, Frank De Boer. I think a lot of that comes down to some smart recruitment, such as Webster from Bristol City and uh, in defence. And yeah, I've been really impressed with how they've transitioned. Yeah, I think Palace's transition was quite naive, though. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I think they, they did it. I think without the director of football, and they did it without, you know, under the previous manager getting in players that are going to be suited to the new identity that mm-hmm. you want, whereas Brighton started to recruit those new types of players under Chris Hutton. Mm. Um, and now when a new fella's coming, straight away he's got players that are suited to to the transition. Yeah, like the, pla- the platform already in place. Yeah, like Brighton have got a director of football, uh, Neil, who is it? I can't, his name escapes yeah, me. Uh, he's been a former FA director, I think, linked with Manchester United at times. You're going to get his name <laughs> Um 
No. It must be an old... Uh, no, it's... Uh, old go on, we'll, 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 we'll come back to it. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back Dan to Ashworth. Yeah, yeah, that's it, yeah. Dan Ashworth, yeah. Oh no, yeah, it is Dan Ashworth, definitely. Yeah, yeah current yeah. director of football at Brighton, and obviously he's been instructed by the owner, who's Tony Bloom. Tony Bloom's um, a a f- famous better sports better playing the markets and things like that. Mm-hmm. So obviously he's very numbers focused, very strategic in the way that he thinks regarding the game. He's got a director of football in, and the approach has been to transition to a new style of play, basically a style of play that's going to take them up the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and be more sustainable in the league rather than just defending every for 19 minutes yeah. like, like they did a little bit under Chris Hutton. Um so yeah trying to instill a more modern game for me a bit more offensive um, the formation of choice this season I think has predominantly been 3-4-2-1 3 at the back um, and obviously they've used those t- those data types signings yeah. such as Webster that you've just mentioned uh, Neil Maupay they got from Brentford another data club they got Eves Pesuma last season they got Trossard in the summer these are players that from my perspective it looks as though they've they've certainly incorporated data into these types of signings a bit like Liverpool yeah yeah no yeah I'm just having a look it's, he, he seems to favour that formation but he can be he's quite fluid isn't he which is I'm such a big fan of especially uh, see top sides don't really need to change the philosophy because they they tend to have the best players, which means they can implement what they want and be successful. But I like sides who are happy to, you know, change the tactics to basically try and overcome the strengths of the opposition. And he seems a very tactically fluid manager, doesn't he? Yeah, um, definitely, yeah. He does He does often mix up formations and stuff and playing style. And um, that's a testament to him, really, and what he's doing with Brighton. I do yeah. like him, I do like him. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I said... That formation is because he he has used that quite frequently and particularly against top opponents. Mm. So I think he used it against United. Yeah. And I think he used it against City away, which is probably the most comparable to Anfield yeah, away. Yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely. So th- that's what I'm expecting going into the match, which I'm not sure. How would you perceive that formation to bode for Liverpool's, Liverpool's team? Because I, I would, if, if it's a back three... A little bit different to a back five, but usually when we play against back five, back three formations, Liverpool's full-backs are usually heavily involved because of the, sp- the space that you're likely to get ahead of that back five. And, and yeah, things. I wonder, I wonder, as I said, because he is quite fluid, I wonder whether he will adapt it slightly, um, given that there's no one as um, proficient than Liverpool in terms of full-backs attacking. Um, one thing I do want to add, because obviously on, on that is even though that's what he's utilised against these sides, they haven't had a great record, have they, really, against these teams? Um, annoyingly, I've just lost me, me connection there, but I know they didn't really... I think they've lost against virtually every perceived top side this Yeah, season. I mean, they did beat Spurs 3-0, but that was at home, yeah. and Spurs were a shambles. Yeah. Spurs were you know, a mess at that point. So Because they went to Old Trafford in, in, the, in the formation we're talking about, um, Three, four, one, two, and they they got beat three, one. What's uh, the expected goals on that though? Did they perform okay? Not not bad. Yeah, it was it was point eight six. So probably good okay. value for the goal. Um, but United, who don't really have a great attack, they were over two. Yeah, okay. So they're well beaten there. Then yeah. Um, we also got Chelsea again. You know they they had an XG of zero point seven two, but Chelsea had an XG of three point four. 
so again well beaten and it just it doesn't uh, one, one thing I did pick up on to be honest elaborating on what you've just mm. said there with the exception of Spurs they, they do seem to have struggled a little bit in regard to generating shots against top opponents yeah, so just, if you if you look yeah. at the shots that they've generated against City United and who's the other team Chelsea yeah there's fewer than eight in each each occasion, I think. Yeah, it's a good point. So, I mean, it, it, shots on the whole United, it was four, but only one on target. Um, where are we? Chelsea, again, eight, one on target. Um, City, I think it was five, wasn't it? City, five, yeah. Three yeah. on target, but, you know, as I said, with the, the next year, was the, uh, 0.75, it tends to suggest that the, the shots weren't of any great, of great any great value. Um, so yeah, I just think that's interesting that the um, they have struggled a little bit against these perceived top teams. Yeah, I mean it'll be interesting to see how the how they set up against Liverpool because obviously if the transition to this modern assertive style, if you like, and then clients to build from the back and things like that, there's obviously a greater degree of risk doing that against Liverpool at Anfield in comparison to other teams week in week out. So. Yeah. Do you think, and I've seen you flagged it just on our agenda here, <laughs> but um, it's something I did spot myself. The impossible side is perceived as being really possession-focused, isn't it? But it's not necessarily just kind of... Um, it's like, not for example, I don't think they go to Anfield and just try and play Liverpool off the park, will they? No, I think he's a bit more... Like a Norwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think he's a bit more realistic than that. Yeah. A bit more pragmatic, more yeah. Pragmatic, yeah. yeah. That's the way I was looking for. Um, but I think they're an interesting team at the minute. According to numbers, just delving into them, they're very much a bang average mid-table side at the minute, which isn't really a criticism, because I think no. it's roughly what they're trying to get towards anyway. Well, we're talking about Brighton, aren't we? As we, we yeah. touched on earlier, they're not, a, they're not a, a traditional Premier League side, and they're just trying to establish themselves. Yeah, I think they're just very much an OK, fine team that are just progressing towards an end goal that's going to be Possibly better, mm. but at the minute they're just, you know, drifting in 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 the middle really, which is again fine, you know, for a, a new manager who's who's integrating in a new style of play. Um, they've they've averaged the seventh most passes in the division. Sorry, they've hit the seventh most passes in the division. They average the seventh most possession. Um, seventeenth for expected goals. So obviously they're still finding the feet on the attacking side of the game. Um, but defensively expected goals against they are 10th um, 12th for shots taken 11th for shots faced 11th for PPDA which we, we know is pressing so just as I said very much a mid-table almost like a beige team really <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you didn't know a great deal about Potter and about Brighton's past and, what, and the owner and what they're trying to do You'd look at that and just think it's just a normal vanilla team. Yeah, really, run of the yeah. Mill. yeah, yeah. yeah. But they, I mean, they have got more about them than that, which we've obviously just mm. just addressed. But strictly based on the numbers, they did nothing special, nothing terrible either, really. But yeah, maybe at this stage, while while while, because as you said, looking at that, you'd be a little bit. You could potentially be un- underwhelmed, but yeah, it's probably best, and maybe you'll agree disagree. Um, to perceive this season, maybe the next is just laying the foundations for maybe something better that might come along further down the line. 
Yeah, you say that's fair. Yeah, I mean, if if they continue to recruit how they have, you know, I, I, I don't think they've made many mistakes in the market. So if they continue to build and they continue to sign players that end up coming in and establishing first team places mm. and their squad gets better while executing the same game plan, same game model, if you like, um, they should gradually climb the table. Yeah. Um, it's just a case of at the minute, still a little bit caught between styles, although I do think the they are better than the numbers suggest. I think that they themselves have suffered from a little bit of bad luck. I think they've had a few men sent off as well. Yeah. Which will obviously impact the results. Where, I haven't even checked, actually. Where are they in the table? I can check I'm gonna, for you now, Josh. I'm going to guess they're around 15th. Let's make sure I've got this in right. 15th or so. So, 12th. 12th. You know, the, it, and because of how tight the table is, they're um, three points off sixth. What so. about um, the expected points table? Expected points table, we've got them at... Uh, ch -ch -ch -ch. I have to count that down. <laughs> uh, 10th. And so then the top 10. Yeah, so I, again, yeah. just like run of the mill at the minute. Mm. Bang average team in the Premier League, which again, not really a criticism. Just, I think it's I think it's roughly what Brighton were after. I think saw an interview with uh, Dan Ashworth during the season. And, um, you know, he was asked... What does what does Tony Bloom want for Brighton? And I think he just said a consistent top ten team in the Premier League, which is what the what the movement was really. Yeah. But I think from a Liverpool perspective, it is nice to play these teams, the, the, the teams that are transitioning towards a new a new game, but they're not really there yet. Yeah. And they're not gonna hate you that much on the opposite end. I would be. I'm not tempting fate, fate, sorry, but I would be very surprised if Liverpool didn't have a. I'm not saying steamroll them, but if they didn't have a comfortable afternoon. Yeah, I, I would say the same, yeah. I'd I be mean, inclined, to be honest, to maybe mix the team up a little bit. Is that is that pushing it too far, you think? I don't want, um, I just don't want to disrespect them or I don't want to... No, I know, I know where you're coming from because yeah. we we do have Napoli midweek yeah. and obviously we have Everton after that. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they're more intense games, but it, I suppose it just depends. It, it just depends on how, how the Napoli game goes with any players getting knocks or anything like that. Mm. Um, but I understand where you're coming from in terms of this is no disrespect to Brighton, but it should be a relatively comfortable match. Mm. I fancy Liverpool to score in and around three, if I'm honest. Mm. I think that's what City got during, during the season against them yeah. without without playing particularly well. Yeah. And Brighton did cause them problems going forward as well. But yeah, just, I think the, the, the assessments of people who were there, um, I say I've looked at the numbers, but people were saying they would they, they played well and probably could have. The, the scoreline didn't ref reflect that performance. Yeah. I mean, opponents tend to take, based on the season so far, roughly about 13 shots compared to Brighton's 11. So they are getting outshot on average by about two, um, which will likely increase against Liverpool. So, uh, yeah, I mean, a few dangers. I think I think Neil Morpaio, I've just mentioned earlier, is probably their most dangerous player at the minute. Mm. Obviously showed up very well last season in terms of expected goals and expected assists and things like that. I think he's relatively young, quick. Mm. So he's, he's certainly a danger we'll have to cater for. I think he's slightly more left-sided too, which again doesn't bode particularly well for strength. Um, but yeah, I think I think it'll be a relatively comfortable match. Um, I fancy Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson to be heavily involved. And if they are not heavily involved, then that means 
Brighton are likely affording space in around Liverpool's front three. Yeah, yeah. So, there's multiple options really, isn't there? That on the surface it looks like Liverpool will be able to profit from. Yeah, just like a, a Liverpool are a bit of a um, double jeopardy type team at the minute, whereby you know if you do want to take care of one problem, another's probably going to emerge yeah. elsewhere. I like that term, double jeopardy. Well, du- you know I might as well just plug it now. There's a piece going out today from myself. On this the, looks on, like such an assist by it, me. It, there. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. It, it does. Going to take quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, piece going up today on on Liverpool and how they're able to just present a double jeopardy, double jeopardy type type um, prospect to the opposing team. You know, if if you do want to want to compensate in in a certain zone of the pitch, Liverpool have probably got a threat elsewhere. And um, you know, just being Liverpool, just being basically the the complete puzzle, really, mm. from an opposition perspective. But yeah, I think it's going to have to be a shorter episode this week because we we were going to address Everton, but I think next week we're going to give you two episodes, aren't we? Yeah, it just felt you know it 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 seemed wrong to shoe on Everton in at the end of this episode. You know, we're already looking at um, two opposition sides anyway, aren't we? And Everton's obviously for most people one of the bigger games of the season. So it and there's a lot going on there as well. There's a lot for us to talk about. We both obviously. Um, Host now analysing Everton's show, so we're well versed in Everton, we're well versed in Liverpool, and I think it just deserves a little bit more than you know. Um, but yeah, minutes plus, at the end. Plus, it's worth noting as well that we don't entirely know who's even going to be in charge yeah, when the derby actually comes around. Yeah, there's a lot that can happen in the next seven days, so it's uh, it's one that's we'll we'll give some due care and attention on next week. Yeah, so a little bit of a shorter episode this week, but that's simply because next week. We're going to, I think, be, be given, providing two episodes, one before the derby and one after the derby. So hopefully um, Liverpool will go into that match with a, with a couple of wins. And um, and yeah, we'll address the derby next week. So thanks for joining us, Dave. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thank you, everyone. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.